Timothy then? I lied. Go to Hebrews. <laughs> Go to Hebrews. I, I rarely lie when I preach, but I'll tell you if I do. Go to Hebrews 13. We're going to uh, talk to you tonight about the good deposit. Now, when you hear a preacher use the word deposit, you might get scared because we live in a day when liars and fishers of funds are after your pocketbook. In this church, we don't care enough about the pocketbook to even pass an offering. We care about your life and the obedience that comes from it. And we figure when we teach you who you are, that we will not have to teach you what to do. That the living God will give you a new character and a new identity and a spirit of obedience so that you want to be pleasing to Him. So we won't have to extort you or appeal to your greed or prompt you. You simply will have a life that overflows in obedience. Are you in Hebrews 13? Yes. When I say good deposit, I am not referring to money. Uh, in the 13th chapter of Hebrews, let us get to the 7th verse. Let's see how that works here. My page is stuck together in the rain. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. From this verse, can you conclude that Jesus has not changed? Yes. That the same Jesus that walked the, the desert sands of Judea is the same Jesus that shows up in our midst. Yes. This Jesus tells us in his scripture, whoever wrote Hebrews in his name, tells us that we should consider the outcome of our leader's way of life. What does that tell us that we should know? We should know our leader's way of life. I want to tell you that we live in an age where if a man speaks well, he can be a pastor. I do not aim to pastor you by the eloquence of my words, but by the content of my character. In the name of Jesus, we leave our front door to our house open for a reason. You're invited to our house not one night a week, but every night of the week for a reason. If we begin to live in a way that is different than the way that we preach, the Bible calls us hypocritical liars. Our whole hope is that inviting people close, not just to us, but to every leader in the church, that you don't just hear a teaching, you see a way of life. I would like you to consider for a minute the landscape in which Jesus taught. I've lined the walls in this church with these kind of scenes. Over here we have the Dead Sea in southern Israel. We have uh, further up Galilee. When you think about the landscape in which Jesus taught, he's walking along the road and he sees a sower sowing seed. And so it begins to relate the kingdom of God to something that is happening in their daily lives. If this had been an American institution, it would be a teaching center. It would be a place in which you would have the very best visual aids and props, and you would go sit in a classroom in an academic setting, and what would happen is you would have a test at the end. Probably multiple choice, graded by a computer, and taught by a corpse. This is the way that we do things. The way that Jesus did it is he said, you want to learn? I will make you a fisher of men. Follow me. Live like I live. Do what I do. When I kick up dust, you should be so close to me that it gets on you. Follow in my footsteps. This is the atmosphere in which the scripture was written. It's the atmosphere in which the apostles lived. And so when they wrote about teaching, they were not talking about an abstract concept. They were quite simply talking about a manner of life that your deeds expressed. 
Turn with me to Corinthians, the fourth chapter and 17th verse. Say there when you were there. <clears throat> For this reason I am sending you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Say that with me. Everywhere in every church. Paul's way of life agreed with his teaching. He taught the same thing and lived the same way everywhere in every church. You didn't get to read a biography of him online that said that he liked okra. You didn't get to do that. What you did is you got to go spend the day with him. He didn't hide behind Christian secret service agents in red coats that were there to remind you that he is up here and you were down there. And that his name is spelled with a big I and yours is with a little U. This is not the way that the men of God in the Bible worked. It's not the way that they lived. They lived among the people. And the only thing that separated any of them from the people was simply their function. See, two brothers could be walking right alongside the same road and be absolutely equal because they're brothers, but one be a soldier in authority in a military sense, and the other be a mayor who is in authority in a very civil sense. In the kingdom, we are brothers and co-heirs. The only thing that separates clergy and laity in any form or fashion is simply the function within the local body. So that the Bible calls all of us saints. Saints, everyone. It's funny that a Protestant Reformation was fought over these ideas and then give us two or three or four hundred years and we repeat every one of the mistakes. I would like to maintain to you tonight that as we speak on this subject, a good deposit is something that the Lord wants to place in every one of us. It comes as we share our lives together, as we spur one another on in fellowship, as we quite literally share our daily lives with each other. It is not enough to simply go to a learning center and pick up the latest teaching. We have to see and be lives that can be imitated. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Look at Paul's charge to Timothy. It comes from 2 Timothy. I mean, we have it in 1 Timothy as well, but let's look at 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 10. Say there when you're there. Where are the rest of you? If you're not there, where are you? Come on, help me out. Are you there? Yeah. 2 Timothy 3.10 You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse. I know all we hear these days is that God wants you rich. But the original writers of the Gospels, the men who carried it out, what they taught us was that the world would hate you, not pay you. But as for you, continue in what you have learned. Boy, there's another preaching right there. It's not enough to have known it at one time. It's not enough to have prayed it at one time. It's not enough to have simply acknowledged it. It is something to be continued in. And have become convinced of. Why? Because you know those from whom you have learned it. He goes on to give a very familiar passage about the uses of the word of God. 
I would like to tell you that when you learn something in the Bible, you learned it from somebody that you had gotten to know. Now, when we built this room, I was very discouraged to find out how high the stage would have to be to see the person from the back seat, to run all of the cables under it. And I began to understand why we do some of the things we do. But it really is the exact opposite of the world Jesus lived in. In most synagogues, if Jesus stood to teach in a synagogue in Galilee, it was likely that it was amphitheater style. In other words, the furthest seat in the back where Edgar is would be the highest in the room, and the lowest place in the room would be where the man was speaking. This conveyed a message. It taught something. The man in the, in the pulpit, so to speak, should be the most humble in the room. Knowledge puffs up. What does love do? Builds up. The whole idea, the whole concept is that you would not hear a teaching worth adhering to. You would see a life that was worth following. This is what we're called to. It's not a pastor who is called to make disciples. It is all believers who are called to make disciples. To do it, we have to have humble lives. Be ordinary men that are filled with extraordinary power so that others see a life that they would want to follow. This is distinctly different than a Greek concept that comes in and simply says, if you know what I know, then you are a disciple. If you can agree with these 14 points, then you are a disciple. The Word of God was never so tame. It was never so toned down. It was challenging. It was bold. Can anyone find a scriptural precedence for spinning in the mud and making an eyeball? I mean, before Jesus did it, it had never been done. It had never been conceived of. But a man walking with the power of the Holy Ghost could hear from God and do something that had never been conceived of. Today, we have to write to some other state, to a district headquarter, and ask if it is okay if God can move in this way. I'm not a faddish Christian. Y'all know this. I'm not looking for the latest angel dust or gold feathers or whatever in between those things there are. I'm looking for the authentic moving of the Holy Spirit. Amen. For exalting the name of Jesus and magnifying the Father. I don't believe that we need to resort to partner tricks. I think we simply live ordinary lives that are filled with extraordinary power. Amen. Somebody should say amen to that. Amen. Because we're speaking about you, not about me. Actually, we're speaking about both of us. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 3. In 1 Timothy 3, let us look at the 15th verse. If I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. Listen to this phrase. If I'm delayed, I'm writing this so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves. Where? In God's household. Do you know what the prototype for God's household is? Your household. The way that the things should be conducted in the church came right out of the way people conducted their households. To us, this becomes very business-like. A man delivers a sermon. Maybe you outline it. You throw some change in a box and then you move on. But in the biblical world, this was simply considered an extension of the community you were already in. It was a chance for you to love the people next to you, them to love you. 
for you to share and, and express your trust in the living God together. You shared each other's fate. Because a Roman emperor didn't come and say, I'm after the Baptists today and I'll be after the Pentecostals tomorrow. They made no such distinctions. The Roman emperor came and any member of the church of Ephesus had to go underground or he would be killed under Domitian. These things happened. And persecution tightened the ranks. Now, wouldn't you think that if there was tremendous persecution, we would take whoever was our strongest voice, whoever was our most dominant leaders, whoever was the wealthiest, whoever was the most popular, and we would make them leaders? This is not how Paul said to do it. In fact, when Paul's teaching how things ought to be in the church, look at Timothy 3.3. He says it so clearly. Men not given to drunkenness. He says the same things in 3.8 about deacons. Uh, sincere, not indulging in much wine. Now how would you know on, on any given day how a megachurch pastor drank in his home? How would you have any idea? Have you ever been in a home that was over a million dollars? I just came from a hometown. I love the people that are there, but I was, I was told today that the latest pastor who fell was in a home that was $1.2 million. I wonder how many people got a chance to eat with him in that home. I wonder how many people have any idea if he indulges in too much wine. Then we're surprised when our greatest leaders fall. We never knew them at all. Listen, he doesn't stop there. Look at 3.2 and 3.11. He mentions the word respectable. Whether we're talking about overseers or we're talking about deacons. But my favorite is in 3.4. He must manage his own family well. And see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? The same thing is found in 3.12. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Do we care anymore? When we say we have a biblical church, do we know if it is in fact biblical? Do we care if our leaders are holy or just if they speak or sing well? And how could we know? See, when we reduce this thing to coming to a holy place on a holy day to see a holy man for an unholy fee, we have reduced it to something that Jesus never intended. When he said, this is my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, he was not talking about a social organization. Amen. He was talking about something that from the heavens down, we're bringing the kingdom of God to earth, the reign of God to earth, and it would come through ordinary men who simply love the Lord enough to live every day for his glory. And they would take other ordinary men and teach them to do the same thing so that the religious leaders of his day could look at the men he picked and say, these are ordinary, unlearned, untrained men. But take note, they have been with Jesus. This is not a little church picking on a big church. I want to tell you the truth. I have met pastors of giant churches that were holy, awesome, powerful men and pastors of little churches that had a Napoleonic complex. It has nothing to do with the church size and everything to do with the commitment to be authentically Jesus. Amen. Jesus was the Lord of glory and he didn't allow men to exalt him. Why do we crave it so? Why do we allow it so? And we blame the leaders for being exalted, but is it not the people who exalt them? Saints, I would love to return to real discipleship. 
the only time that this church has ever known. Where we share meals with each other. We share struggles with each other. We pr share prayer time with each other. So that you see that your brothers are bending and cracking and swinging under the load. And yet they are sustained by the hand of God. And it gives you courage that if he did it for Joel. If he healed Joel at the altar today. He'll heal Darnell at the altar. And if he healed Darnell at the altar. He'll heal the next one that asks at the altar. Because they're ordinary people. We didn't come in with a prophecy planned. We didn't come in with a song list planned. I have no notes for a sermon up here planned. This is just simply who we are. Amen. Oh, could we get back to a day when people were simply preaching and teaching out of the overflow of their heart. And it's who they are. There may be many fine ministries upon a TV set. I don't know because I don't watch TV. But I have to imagine that if we have to plan it around commercial breaks and we have to plan it around the acceptance of the audience and once we get 8 million people in our audience, it must have some effect on what is said. I have no such concerns here because I know that the truth of the gospel will win the hearts of those God has called. And we don't need special lighting. We don't need special padding. We don't need special enhancements. What we need is the power of of God in ordinary men. Oh, how dare we lift up any more leaders. Somebody turn to Corinthians 15. Look at the third verse. Say there when you're there. It'll help me. They beat me there on the screen. For what I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. I actually read that wrong. For what I received, I passed on to you. That is such an interesting phrase. For us, we just hear it and it's just regular English. And I get that. But if from 586 B.C. you had been brought into captivity in Babylon. And when God delivered you out of captivity in Babylon, somewhere around 516 B.C., from then until the day of Christ and from the day of Christ till now. So speaking of some 2,500 years. Every Saturday you had gone to a synagogue. And after going to synagogue you had come home and you had recited something. You had recited what is called the Pirkei Avot. The Ethics of Our Fathers. And it reminded you. It reminded you of these words. Moses received the Torah on Sinai and passed it down to Joshua. Joshua to the elders, the elders to the prophets, and the prophets passed it down to the men of the great assembly. They said these three things. Be delivered in judgment. Raise up many disciples and make a fence around the Torah. If this was something that you read every single Saturday, reminding you of how teaching came to you. It came to you from men that you knew. They received it from God and they brought it and gave it to you. You received it from them as agents of God and you grew it and you transmitted it to the next generation. When this was read every week and then you hear something like for what I received, that which I passed on to you in Corinthians 15, it would carry with it a certain compulsion to even memorize it. The average Jew in Jesus' day had the ethics of our fathers, all six chapters, completely memorized the way that you know what to do when you get to a red octagonal sign. What do we do, friends? Some of you go faster, I know you. That's the downside to knowing each other's lives, huh? No, I hope you stop. The whole point here being, Paul received something from God. 
And he began to entrust it by way of allowing people close to his life. Going everywhere that he could to preach and teach, but also to live among the people. This was a part of his life, a very big part of his life, as was the part of every Jewish man. They all saw themselves as having received a deposit from God. It was a deposit meant to repair the world. It's called Tikkun Olam in Hebrew. To repair the creation. This is a restoration of what God told Adam in Genesis 1.26 through 1.28. That he would rule and reign the creation. That he would replenish it or restore it or refill it. Or there are so many words that could be translated there. But it all happened when an ordinary man received a good deposit. Amen. And he began to do something with it. Look at 2 Timothy 1.3. <coughs> I know you're not accustomed to people quoting the Mishnah to you. But I'm not quoting the Mishnah as authoritative. You know what I'm saying? I'm saying this was in practice during the day the scriptures were written. The same way that every child in here knows the Pledge of Allegiance. Or at least... Every child at some points knew the Pledge of Allegiance. Now I don't know. I thank God whom I serve as what my forefathers did. Who were Paul's forefathers? Oh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and everybody that came after them. Paul stayed within the Jewish tradition as he expanded the knowledge of the Messiah. This is not a Messianic congregation and that is not my point. My point is, the man that we're about to read about, and the words that he's giving, were given in a Jewish context. One in which a man would receive from God. He would grow that deposit, and then he would give that deposit to another man. And then it would occur over the course of his lifetime. Numbers 8 teaches that if you were going to be a Levite and a priest, from 0 to 25, you could not work in the temple. From 25 to 50, you would do the hardest work that was available. And from 50 to the end of your life, you would supervise those who were doing the work. What this would mean is somebody would have received knowledge from God, received a way of life from God. They would carry it out. And then they would supervise and encourage and look at the next generation that was doing it. Look, while we're in 2 Timothy, hold your finger there. Go to Psalm 78 and you'll hear how it said there. Say Psalm 78 for me. Let me know you're alive, you're awake. We had prayer this morning at 5.30 and I uh, had to speak resurrection life into my body just to do it. But some things are worth it and some things are not. Have you ever stayed up late for a movie? Ever stayed up late for a football game? Ever stayed up late for a sporting event? Oh, we can stay up late for the good deposit. Look at Psalm 78, verse 3. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power and the wonders He has done. He has decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which He commanded our forefathers to teach their children. So the next generation would know them even... The children yet to be born. And they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget His deeds, but would keep His commands. Did every father, did every man then have something they were supposed to pass along? They did. Everyone. Deuteronomy 8 teaches that you do it as you walk along the road, not when you sit in a chair. 
It teaches that when you go in and out of your house, not when you hide in a church. It teaches that no matter where you are and what you are doing, you are to impress the word on your children. Well, what began to happen is those who understood who Messiah was, those who were in love with Messiah, were encountering people who were not. And they were like fathers. They were mentoring figures, if you will. Especially to Gentiles who had no knowledge of this Jewish Messiah. And they followed them. And they wanted to know more about them. So that Timothy, raised by a Jewish mother and a Jewish grandmother, but with a Greek father, followed Paul everywhere he went. So that Titus, who was Greek from the day he was born to the day he died, never circumcised and never kosher, ever, 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 followed Paul everywhere he went. This was how they learned the gospel. It's how they received it. It's how they transmitted it. It's not cultish, it's biblical. In 2 Timothy 1, look at verse 11 and we will come to our point. And of this gospel I was appointed a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. When you think about a herald, he's somebody who announces. When you think about an apostle, he's somebody who established. When you think about a teacher, he is somebody who builds. Paul was appointed to go and announce. He was appointed to go and, and establish. He was appointed to go and build up. Did he do his work well? Oh, you're proof that he did. The book in your hands is proof that he did. That is why I'm suffering as I am. When he told Timothy, he lived out. His words were not mere words. When he told Timothy, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, he knew it firsthand. He was confident that it was true. Oh, how many sermons are taught on a Sunday morning and a Wednesday night where they simply heard it and thought it was a good idea. It was the latest internet clip. It was the most fattish thing to preach. Not long ago, there was a honey badger clip that made its way around the internet. And you can Google it, and sermons will come up based on a honey badger. You know why? Because pastors are so empty inside. They are so dry that they can't do anything except regurgitate what they think the people would want to hear. But the gospel was not that way. And the men who preached it were not that way. The Holy Spirit became in them a fountain that was overflowing to eternal life. It was bubbling out of them and spilling on everyone around them. And this is how the community of God grew. It was not with sinker sensitive messages that were meant to upset no one. The truth is, is that the gospel will always separate sheep from goats. It will always upset the vast majority of the people or it's not the gospel. We've learned to say things like it's not God's best for you instead of it will damn you and you need to stop it because it's sin. This ought not be. And if we could grow our spiritual spine back, people would repent and mass. I promise it. Do you know how we know it? We know it because it's the way it's been done for centuries. And Christianity is still here despite the devil's best effort, efforts Amen. to stop it. Amen. As long as one or two or five or ten holy men will live a holy 
and pure life and commit themselves to share what God has given them, it will always spread. Eleven scared little Jewish boys changed the world as we know it because they would not back down to the powers of their day. What could you do if given the chance? Listen to the way that Paul says this. That is why I'm suffering as I am, yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard my Bible in the NIV says what I have entrusted to him for that day. The reason I said my Bible says that. King James takes this route. Uh, NIV takes this route. Here's the complete Jewish Bible. And this is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed because I know him in whom I have put my trust. And I am persuaded that he can keep safe until that day what he has entrusted to me. And the NIV it has it as you entrusted something to God. But this is antithetical to the Jewish position. The Jewish position is not that you gave something to God, but that God gave something to you. When we look at the Amplified, they pick up on it in the same way. And this is why I'm suffering as I do. Still, I am not ashamed, for I know, perceive, have knowledge of, and am acquainted with him whom I have believed, adhered to, and trusted in, and relied on. And I am positively persuaded that he is able to guard and keep that which has been entrusted to who? Me. Me. See, when Paul was writing to Timothy, two men acquainted with Judaism in their entire lives. They did not believe for a second that they had something to give to God. They believed that God was entrusting to them something. That it was their job to grow it. Their job to, to transmit it. That they had a divine responsibility. That theirs were the covenants and the patriarchs and the human ancestry of Christ, as Romans 9 says. <laughs> now, I'm not here to take issue with Bible translations. I read the NIV. I love it. It's simply an area where because we've not understood the culture, we missed the point. There's two Greek words at play here. One is apotheke. You know what an apothecary jar is? This is the same Greek base. It's something that you open and you deposit in. Like a, uh, at a pharmacy. They have apothecary jars. In Greek, there's two words in the sentence. One is apotheke and the other is M-O-U, mau. And it, it simply means of me or mine. And it's ambiguous. There are sentences that can be said in English that you don't know unless you're there or you hear it enunciated or it's properly punctuated what someone means. Look, what's that in the road ahead? Well, that means something's in the road in front of you. Or look, what's that in the road ahead? That's much more gruesome, isn't it? This is one of those sentences. It is not possible to know who, the, who has been entrusted with, who's been a papike. It's, it's a pronoun without an antecedent. And the writer was trusting that his audience understood that he would never be, be so bold as to say that he had given God something. He understood. In fact, look at the rest of the context. I'm not here to teach linguistics. I'm not even qualified. I'm just an ordinary man that loves the Lord. But watch this. Yet I'm not ashamed because I know him whom I have believed and am convinced of that he is able to guard uh, what he has entrusted to me for that day. What you heard from me keep us the pattern of sound teaching with faith, love, in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. See, it fits the context. The context is that God is giving you something. And that since he's given it to you, you have the responsibility to give it to someone else. And that the Holy Spirit will help you keep safe that which he has deposited in you. 
Oh, come on. Has anybody in here had a revelation? But when you began to share it, others began to tear it down. You maybe got baptized in the Holy Ghost. And so you went to all of those cessationists that say it doesn't happen. And you say, I used to agree with you. Except it happened to me. And I can no longer pretend like it didn't happen because, watch, it happened. What happens then? Well, some are moved, some are excited, some go, oh, if it's possible for him, it might be possible for me. Others begin to try to chip away at it. Others begin to pull it down because it doesn't agree with their pattern. Listen, most of our lives is about removing what doesn't agree with God's pattern. We have a fundamental choice. We can try to conform him to a comfortable image for us, or we can conform our lives to a very uncomfortable image of him. Have you noticed that throughout the world, deities resemble the people? See, Siddhartha, the man that we call Buddha, I've been to India five times in the last three years. And Siddhartha was from India. You know the one thing that he did not have? Asian features. But when his teachings spread through Southeast Asia, and they imagined Siddhartha, they imagined him with eyes that looked like theirs. They imagined him with skin color that looked like theirs. Have you ever seen a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus? We did the same thing. You ever been somewhere and seen an African-American Jesus? They did the same thing. You see, we have a fundamental choice to make. God wants to deposit in us something from heaven. He will run you into people that you can respect their entire way of life and adhere to it. And they will help you with the pattern that is being laid down that's been going on since God began revealing to man. And we have a choice whether we're going to change our preconceived structure or we're going to stick to our structure and reject God's. When we look at the 12th verse, we see that he entrusted something to Paul. When we look at the 13th verse, we see that he tells Timothy to keep it as a pattern. By the time we get to the 14th verse, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. So we see in these verses that something's entrusted to one man. It's given to a second man. He's told to adhere to it and to guard it. But the message does not stop there. Turn with me to 2 Timothy 2, start in the first verse. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men, who will also be qualified to teach others. Listen, as we talk about this concept, we are not talking about a sage on a stage depositing into you. We're talking about brothers co-laboring in the kingdom right next to each other. Men that you don't respect because they keep a comfortable dis distance. You respect because they refuse to keep a distance. And yet God uses them the same way that He uses you. There are no demagogues in the kingdom. There are no men that are heads and shoulders taller than everyone else. We're equally small. We're equally flawed. And we can be equally empowered. By the living God. This is a message that Americans don't like. And the reason that we don't like it. Is if our leaders are no bigger than we are. We might be expected to do what they do. It's much better to think of them as supermen. Exalted men. Great men. And us as ordinary men. Then it alleviates us. Our job becomes to sit and soak. I say that our job is more than that. It's to receive. Amen. It's to grow. And it's to transmit the kingdom. The Great Commission is not for a select few. It's for all. 
The baptism in the Holy Ghost is not an op optional add-on like a moonroof. The baptism in the Holy Ghost is the necessity, the power to witness, Amen. the power to encourage, the power to be of the mind of Christ. Amen. How can we back away from these things? Well, if we do, we'll be ineffective in our knowledge of Christ Jesus. We may gather a crowd that is a mile wide, but it will be an inch deep. I hear the spirit of Ezekiel calling to us. It comes from Ezekiel 46. He said, the water is ankle deep. And yet I went further, and it became knee deep. And I went further, and it became waist deep. And I went further, and it was a raging river that carried me away. This is the Holy Ghost filled walk. It's not comfortably ankle deep. If you're not in over your head, you are not in. One of my favorite musicians, a guy named Don Potter, while he's singing, he takes a little aside. If you sing 20-minute songs, you can do that. And he starts talking about the river of God's Spirit, and he says, jump in. Stop testing the waters, jump in. The best you can do is hope to drown right away. <laughs> and he's right. As soon as we can learn simply to move in the flowing of the Holy Spirit to glorify God Almighty and lift up the name of Jesus, then we begin growing that deposit that's in us. Because we can all learn a scripture. Let's just say that we all learn Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, right? Let's say that we learn it. And we learn to parrot it back. I even give kids M&Ms in children's church to learn it. I'm not above bribery. But you know what? We may all know Romans 16, 20, but we can never know what it means to Alex. And the reason we can't know what it means to Alex is we have not lived in Alex's shoes. But the moment that verse becomes real to him, and he goes, oh my goodness, the Spirit of God has crushed Satan under my feet. I'm victorious. I'm not underneath. Don't let all the power of hell come after me, because when I stand firm and resist, he runs like a scared dog when he gets that revelation. It's worth preaching, isn't it? Yes. See, we gain a revelation in the Word not when we know it, but when we experience Amen. it. And I can't experience it for you, and you can't experience it for me. But aren't you encouraged when you hear your brother is experiencing it? Yes. That's what makes the community of God. That's why Paul said these things must be done. When we bring our experience with the Word to one another, we spur one another on. Yes. This is the hope of Christian fellowship. And it's why we cannot lay at home in our beds and watch our TVs and call that church. Amen. I put some thousand messages online. They've been going on since 2003. There are far more people that listen to them out there than on our most packed Sunday morning. And it's still not church. And I don't mind saying it. This one will be online too. And they'll all hear it. And I'll say it again. It's not church. And the reason that it is not is because to experience what the Bible calls Ecclesia, to, to experience what the Hebrews called Pahal, it requires you to be in the assembly of the Lord. You don't have an assembly with a single person. You are the temple of God, but when we join together, there is something special about it. I say that discipleship is more than a class taught in this church on Sunday night. I didn't even name it the discipleship class. I named it discipleship helps. It starts a conversation that you can carry all day, every day. It starts to model a lifestyle that we can imitate in each other. And when you see I'm falling down in it, you can call me out on it. 
And you can love me enough that if I see you're falling down in it, I can call you out on it. And thus we all become accountable to each other, more accountable to God, and more responsible to carry His name. More trustworthy. Did you know that when you've been given a trust, you have to prove faithful? Did you know that? Paul said that men ought to regard him as a man entrusted with the secret things of God. Do you know why? He lived it day in and day out. He wrote in one of his letters, you know yourself how holy, righteous, and blameless we were when we lived among you. What leader today would dare write such a thing? We hope that our press agents and our spin doctors can suppress the story of the megachurch pastor choking his daughter. You hope that they can suppress the story of the greatest man of God's latest indiscretion. The early church was not like this. They were ordinary people that did not have press secretaries. And I think we should abandon them as well. It's nearly 9 o'clock. Do you have a moment for one more encouragement? Come on. Yes. Who has a moment for one more encouragement? Give me a hand. Well, that's at least 10 or 15 more encouragements, isn't it? Listen, we probably made our point, and that's all I intended to do. Let me do this, though. As we look at 2 Timothy 2, let me tell you that you're going to find three things in it. You're going to find a soldier. You're going to find a farmer. You're going to find an athlete. I actually got them out of order. It's a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. If these are likened unto the kingdom of God, what is a soldier most concerned with? He's most concerned with pleasing his commanding officer. Friends, this is good advice. In our discipleship, in guarding the deposit and transmitting it, we have to stop caring what men think and start caring what God thinks. We have to take the attitude of Joseph that is willing to be sold out by his brothers to be favored by his father. We have to stop caring what the world thinks. Thanks. What is the attribute of an athlete? When he competes for a crown, man, he goes after it, but he has to do it lawfully or he's disqualified. In our attempt to not care what the world thinks, we still must care very much what God thinks. There is a right way, a prescribed way, a holy way. It's called the King's Highway. And we have to walk in it. In Him there is no darkness. There is no shadow. There is no changing. Athletes only get the crown if they participate according to the rules. What is a farmer's glory, friends? The crop. The harvest. Our pride is not in our accomplishment. That is not our crown. Our pride is not in our military achievements as a soldier. That is not our crown. Our pride is in what you are able to. To have helped raise up. And Paul said, one plants, one waters, but God makes it grow and gets the increase. No man can boast in his presence. At the best, we can simply say we did what God told us to do. And he did the rest. The farmer's glory is in the results of his harvest. Friends, some harvest will not be seen till the end of the age. And I want to tell you, I've stood in rooms with men that regularly preach to 20,000. And I've stood in little villages where men never wore shoes and never preached to more than 20 at a time. But at the harvest, it'll get sorted out. Amen. Because I'd rather preach to five that shaped the world than 20,000 that were simply entertained for an hour. Do you know that in Mozambique, Africa, do you know that 
in little villages all over India, little riverfronts all over Honduras, little hamlets all over Romania, all over the world, there are men that not one person seems to know their name, but heaven answers their call. Why not here? Why not now? Why could we not do this? Of course we can. We simply have to stand up. We have to speak up. We have to pray up. We have to refuse to let up or shut up or back up. Amen. We have to stand up as the church of God. Is it possible that we don't speak up because we think we have nothing to say and get the good deposit? Is it possible you think that you have nothing of worth then get the good deposit? If you're sitting there and you believe yourself to be the repository of all knowledge and all goodness, then praise God for you, transmit it. The Dead Sea is dead, not because it has nothing in it, but because it has way too much in it and no outlets. I have found seriously that knowledge makes an arrogant man, but a godly lifestyle makes a powerful weapon in the hand of God. Amen. I said that I wouldn't read this and I would like to come to a close. Let me tell you eight specific things that are said to Timothy to encourage him. Verse 1, he's told to be strong. Verse 2, he's told to entrust to reliable men. Verse 3, he's told to endure hardships. Verse 4, he's told to avoid civilian entanglements. Verse 5, he's told to compete according to the rules. Verse 6, he's told to share or receive or glory in the growth of the harvest. In verse 7, he's told to reflect on the truth. And in verse 8, he's told to remember the resurrection. Oh my goodness, we could do each of those things. What would life look like? There would not be one more Facebook post that says today is bad, tomorrow is not looking any better, and I think this week is down the tubes as well. Maybe we could get our face in his book. It'll change everything. Church, I don't want to beat you up tonight. I do that regularly. The truth is that I love you. I expect you to love me. I expect that we don't simply shake hands and lie to each other in the hallway after church, but instead that we press into the glories of the kingdom of God together. Suffering defeats at times and victories at times, but doing it as the body of Christ. Listen, I have preached to two, three, four, five for many years. I don't have any problem doing it again. I'm not interested in filling this room with bodies. We're interested in finding those who can receive a good deposit. Those who will grow that deposit. And those who will transmit it. Because there is a whole world out there that has never heard Jesus once. Do we deserve to hear him twice without them hearing it once? We have a responsibility. The poor of the world will never come here. They can't do it. Our responsibility is to go there. Those of us who have received the deposit must go. And if we can't go, then we bring them here. We adopt. We love. We teach. We do whatever it takes. But we have to reach out and touch the world around us. This only happens when you think you have something to offer. It's our aim to stuff you like somebody stuffing an ox with grain. But you know what? You have to be hungry. And to be hungry, you have to know that you have poverty of spirit. And to have poverty of spirit, you have to know who God is and who you're not yet. Amen. It's almost like the teachings of Jesus would give us everything we need if we just took them seriously. 